from Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, 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 welcome. We are back. It is rated LGBT Radio with the latest and greatest news of the day. Um, which this day is pretty packed. Yesterday, uh, we had a pretty shocking day here in America, Um, probably one of the most shocking that will go down in infamy. Um, It is probably up there with Pearl Harbor and 911. And that was the day, of course, that the Trump supporters uh, stormed the Capitol building and... um, to say acted disrespectfully is an understatement, threateningly, um, uh, you know, threatening anarchy, taking over the government, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And most of America sat back and watched in shock. Um, that is one of our topics today. Um, with us, uh, we will be welcoming uh, Michael Lavers. Michael is the uh, international editor for the Washington Blade and the L.A. Blade newspapers. Uh, Michael happened to be there at the Capitol uh, yesterday when this all took place. So we're going to get a firsthand account of what it was like to be there, um, his observations and, um, and thoughts. Um, we're also going to be talking to um, Jeff Kors, who is the, um, I think it was former mayor and current city councilman for Palm Springs. Um, Jeff comes, um, and obviously we're going to talk to him about what happened yesterday. Um, being in government, uh, he can absolutely give us some perspective on that. But we're also going to talk to Jeff about um, another mob happening. Um, this is something that the, the L.A. Blade had covered previously, which is that a group of um, gay men were having a I'm not sure if they literally called it a white party, but essentially it was along those lines of a white party in Mexico um, without COVID protections, without all of that, um, and just kind of party hardy. Uh, that was reported on. Uh, I think uh, authorities got involved, and uh, we'll find out what transpired there. So from the Proud Boys in Washington um, and the mob they created to the bad boys um, in Mexico and the party they tried to have. That is our theme today, mobs behaving badly. And uh, with that, I want to welcome my uh, illustrious co-host, Brody Levesque, to the show. Hey, Brody. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening to our listeners around the globe. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think before we bring our guests on, let me give a brief update. Um, At this point, uh, sources in the uh, White House uh, indicated that President Trump will be departing today for the presidential retreat uh, at Camp David. Sources are also saying that there's a good chance that the president will not return to the White House uh, after going to Camp David. Maggie Smith and her colleagues at the New York Times are reporting that uh, Trump has been asking aides uh, about the possibility of self-pardoning himself. This has been going on now for actually 
a bit of time, but apparently those conversations uh, have been in earnest since the events that took place yesterday uh, on Capitol Hill in the Capitol building. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and uh, minority, soon-to-be majority leader, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, uh, both publicly in press conferences separately uh, indicated that they have um, asked Vice President Mike Pence and uh, the, basically the entire Trump cabinet uh, to invoke the 25th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and remove Trump uh, from power, Pelosi labeling Trump as an extremely dangerous uh, person uh, to remain in power. Uh, Schumer more or less uh, echoing those. In a press conference in Wilmington, uh, Delaware, uh, the incoming president-elect Joe Biden refused to comment uh, in terms of the 25th Amendment. However, he directly addressed what happened on Capitol Hill yesterday, pointing the finger directly at Trump, Uh, and paraphrasing President Biden more or less put it all on his shoulders as he's the one that has incited the riot with his actions and with his falsehoods and with his attitudes, Um, uh, sentiments that were echoed by Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, At this point, uh, we're waiting to see what's going on. Obviously, on Capitol Hill today, there's been a tremendous amount of back and forth between lawmakers, uh, law enforcement officials, Uh, There's a lot of recriminations, a lot of finger-pointing. They're telling the uh, damage to the building, which was considerable. Uh, Most people that I've spoken to, and Michael, of course, can uh, expound and expand upon this, but most of the people that I've been talking to uh, today on Capitol Hill um, are still shell-shocked at the desecration uh, of, you know, the institution of American democracy and ground zero for it. Um, a spokesperson for FBI director Christopher Ray told me that the FBI, uh, working alongside the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, uh, is in earnest seeking out those responsible. Um, and they've been joined by the Twitterverse and uh, the rest of the Internet who have been, and I will add this not as an editorial comment, but just as an observation, gleefully assisting law enforcement and identifying the perpetrators, uh, since many of them were quite public tweeting themselves and displaying themselves on social media yesterday um, as they uh, broke into the building and committed acts of domestic terrorism. Um, As you indicated, uh, four people died. Uh, One of them was shot uh, by a Capitol Police officer as she uh, was trying to break into the Speaker's lobby, Um, and the other uh, three apparently had uh, medical issues and died as a result of that. Um, the person that was shot was a Trump follower, also a QAnon aficionado, a conspiratist, a Karen, however you want to label her. Uh, and at the end of the day, and I've been telling my colleagues in the press corps, you know, she was a domestic terrorist. This isn't. This is more than, you know, it just was. This wasn't rioting. This was. She was a domestic terrorist, as were actually any of them. There's also a tremendous amount of finger-pointing going on. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's office told me that the Speaker uh, is has asked for the resignation or firing of the chief of the Capitol Hill Police, in part due to the actions of his officers, uh, some of whom actually uh, were videotaped allowing 
the rioters' access to the Capitol complex and the grounds. Um, Senator Schumer's office indicated to me that the senator, as soon as he becomes majority leader, will be asking or fire, actually, the sergeant at arms of the Senate. Pelosi's office is going to be doing the same uh, with the House sergeant at arms. Uh, You know, there were scenes that were just beyond the pale and shocking. I think the one that probably stated it the best for me, armed planes closed, Capitol Police officers inside the House chamber, guns drawn, pointed at the door. Uh, It doesn't get any worse than that. We're talking about, you know, kind of the holy of holies of democracy, and you've got armed cops in there defending the place, pointing it, uh, putting their weapons at, you know, people trying to break in, which, by the way, ultimately – Everybody had to retreat, uh, and, and you know, the, the rioters and the, the terrorists actually got into the building. Um, on the ground now in Washington, official Washington, and Michael can verify this, and I'll just last thing I'll add here. Uh, the attitude on the ground right now in Washington is one of shell shock. Uh, most people are still shocked that this even happened, and virtually everybody is pointing the fingers at Donald Trump, his attorney Rudy Giuliani, and his son, Donald Jr., for inciting what they said was a riot. And with that, I'll throw it back to you. Well, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Good points for discussion and when we get our guests on. Um, but before we do that, Brody, why don't we touch on the other aspect of what we're covering today um, and the Blades coverage of this event that happened in um, Mexico. Can you set the scene for that? Absolutely. Um, the publisher of the Washington or the Los Angeles Blade, not the Washington Blade. I'm sorry. I think of Mike. I'm thinking Washington. Uh, Troy Masters uh, had been brought a story about a white party uh, event that was going to take place in Puerto Vallarta in the state of Jalisco in Mexico, and of course this would fly in the face of common sense because of the COVID-19 uh, and and the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we started to work on the story. Uh, we worked through contacts and social media. Troy did some. I did some. Uh, and we developed a story. The CEO of White uh, Party Entertainment, Jeffrey Saker, who's home-based in Palm Springs, uh, headed up this effort uh, through Eventbrite, which is an app that uh, is used to promote these events. Um, and they were gathering all these gay guys. Now, in fairness, it wasn't just Puerto Vallarta. This was happening in Miami and New York as well and to a limited degree in Los Angeles. Uh, But the one in Puerto Vallarta was probably the most egregious because of the fact that, um, you know, it just, all these people were coming in, especially from the Southern California region, Palm Springs, San Diego, and Los Angeles. Uh, And some of them, of course, obviously would be um, asymptomatic carriers of COVID more than likely and make the situation on the ground worse uh, for the Mexican people in the states of Jalisco and the neighboring state of Riviera Nayarit, uh, which is where the party ended up at after Jalisco found out about it and chased them out. Now, they chased the parties out, but they, all the partygoers were still staying at hotels and on the beaches and things like that. Um, Troy and I wrote about what was going on, which didn't make us terribly popular, uh, but it wasn't just us. Instagram and, and multiple other social media platforms it became a kind of a group consensus and everybody was blasting these people. And, and surprisingly enough, you know, they blasted right back. Um, Sanker in a conversation that was screen captured and sent to Troy was basically, you know, F Troy masters. 
you know, and yeah, I needless to say, I was kind of amused by that. Uh, there was a lot of comparisons uh, to the situation to um, the young gay guys back during the pandemic, who once it was learned that HIV was transmitted through sexual contact, were still were still throwing barebacking parties, and you know, there there was kind of a a conjoining there of two different elements of the same kind of thing. Uh, And so a lot of that was brought up. And the article that I wrote, which was published, that will be published in a print edition actually coming out tomorrow, but what I published earlier in the week, you know, we covered some of the other aspects of what was going along with this. I spoke to the editor of the largest daily paper um, in Puerto Vallarta, the one serious hospital complex they've got, 125% 125% bed occupancy, no ICU beds, positivity rate in the state of Jalisco, 65%. I mean, as bad as Los Angeles, damn near. Uh, the fact that all these people were coming down and partying and didn't care uh, was rather shocking. Uh, there were some other events that took place, including a party boat that sank, which was immediately labeled the gay Titanic. I, I did, you know, it just was an unbelievable situation. And, and the thing that probably attracted the most amount of negative input from Instagram users, my readers at the L.A. Blade, and others was the fact that these people didn't give a shit. They didn't care. Right. It was like white privilege on steroids. And that really, really seriously annoyed people. So that's, as you put it so eloquently at the beginning of the show, that was our second, you know, mob gone wrong moment uh, for this week. Right. So and and uh, the the um, ethnicity of all the participants were were all white. Is that what you were saying? The vast majority of them. There were some black yeah. participants, gay guys. Uh, I wrote about one of them, but no. The and of course it was the whole thing about New Year's Eve and this and that and blowing off steam. And I mean every excuse of the book, but no. The vast majority of the participants in what happened in Puerto Vallarta were white. There were some black, a few Asian and some Latino, but no, the, the overwhelming majority were white. Okay. All right. Well, let's bring our guests on, because um, I think we've given, given plenty of heads up as to uh, uh, what we're uh, talking about today. So uh, I want to welcome on board, uh, both at once, Michael Lavers and uh, Jeff Carr. Um, welcome, guys. Hey, Robin Brody. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. No, thank, thank you for coming on. I, yeah. Yeah, I want to start with um, Michael. Um, Michael, you were at the Capitol yesterday. I was. Um, I was. I yeah. was. Tell, us, tell us what happened. What, what did you do? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's rather interesting, you know, as a, you know, as a journalist, when you find yourself covering a situation like this, it's often the case that you don't actually realize just how serious it is until much later. And that was certainly the case. Uh, Mike, one of our colleagues at the Blade, was on the other side of the U.S. Capitol. It's the side that faces the U.S. Supreme Court, the east side, when all of the everything started to really go down. I was with the Trump supporters who were marching from uh, the rally that happened near on the Ellipse, which is about a mile and a half away from the Capitol, <clears throat> excuse me, and I started and I got down there. I rode my, I rode a bike down from my apartment in DuPont Circle, and a, my initial goal was just to get some videos of the marchers and 
And I did that, and it's where I was in Freedom Plaza in downtown D.C. when I started following the marchers. It was, you know, people were animated, but, you know, it was very peaceful. And so I just had my phone doing a Facebook Live video, and I was slowly – I was just on my bike going down Pennsylvania Avenue very slowly, continuing to do the Facebook Live video. And I started hearing just – you know, among people in the crowd, you don't get nothing really alarming, like they weren't screaming at them, they weren't screaming or, you know, anything like that. And I heard a couple people say just among themselves, oh, they're storming the Capitol. Okay. Um, so I arrived at the intersection of Pennsylvania Avenue and Third Street Northwest, which is probably about three blocks from the Capitol grounds. Um, and that's the side where the the terrace overlooking the mall, that's where the inauguration takes place. And I looked up and I saw people on that terrace. <clears throat> so that was the first indication that something was going on. Again, I didn't realize people were inside. I didn't realize what was really going on. But the atmosphere at that intersection was much more tense and heavy than it was when I was at Freedom Plaza. And then I started to hear lots of sirens coming up Third Street. And it looked like the crowd kind of surrounded the cars. Um, I was probably about a block away, but it definitely, honestly, I first thought it was Donald Trump coming to the Capitol. That was the first thought that I had when I saw the sirens coming down, you know, we were very used to motorcades and sirens here in DC. So that was my first initial thought, but it's, I, I realized fairly quickly that it was the police trying to respond to the Capitol. And my colleague was mm -hmm. texting me at the time, you know, saying like, you know, things are starting to go down. I'm fine. And then she called me about um, maybe five minutes later saying, I don't see the point in being here. And by the way, it's starting to get unsafe. So I'm leaving. And I, said to her, get the hell out of there. And as I said right. that, the police in riot gear, and I believe they were D.C. Metropolitan Police, just started storming up um, Constitution Avenue, and it just, it was mayhem um, from there. So she left, and then I was still on my bike, so I kind of followed followed them up Capitol Hill to the west side, and by the time I arrived there, I would say there were probably 2,000 people in, right near the visitor center entrance, but people were sitting on the steps of the Capitol, and I could see people inside holding Trump signs. Again, I didn't fully understand what was going on inside because cell phone connectivity was really bad, and I just couldn't read social media. So, And then I heard somebody say in the crowd, um, somebody just got shot and killed. Um, Again, I didn't know if that was true or not. And then I received an alert on my phone that D.C.'s curfew was going into effect at 6 o'clock, and that's when I decided to leave. And only when I arrived home about 4 o'clock did I realize that, oh, my God, this happened at the Capitol, and I started seeing the videos of people storming the building and all of what we saw last night. So it was only when... I arrived home that I realized how serious the situation is. And as Brody said at the beginning, everybody here is shell-shocked. I personally am just stunned. I am angry that this happened in my city. I don't think it's a 
terrible surprise, though, because Trump spoke on the mall at the Ellipse about an hour before. We're used to the spectacle that is Donald Trump here in D.C. at this point, but um, what we saw unfold on the Capitol grounds yesterday inside the Capitol was, you know, something entirely different, and people are extremely upset about what happened here. It's almost like, you know, this was an invasion of our city, basically, and yeah, no, an invasion of our country as well, of the capital. And I, I'd like to just point out, like, I was getting calls from people all over the world. I'm the international news editor for The Blade, and I've been to countries, Cuba most notably, where this concept of democracy is just something that's anathema. And I had a friend in Cuba called me this morning, and I'll just, you know, I wrote it down before the show started. He said, um, we consider the democracy that you have, the freedom that you have, the legal system as an example. And then he pointed out the uh, picture of the Confederate, uh, the, the Trump supporter holding the Confederate flag in the Capitol. And then he said, it's a sacred place where democracy, where democracy for the entire world is. Basically what happened yesterday just was a mockery of all of that. And that's very, very sad. Um, that this is what yeah. happened here. No, it's it's it, it was shocking, and and honestly, I I really do not think that there has been an event like it, and and in such a um, complete universal consciousness across the country. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the last one that was even close was nine eleven, in, in my opinion. Right. Um, when with the were you surprised at the size of the crowd? in the town. I, it's hard for us who weren't there to tell how big the crowd was. It, I know there have been quite a few marches there, like the Women's March and mm-hmm. um, the LGBT March on Washington uh, years back. Was the crowd greater than those marches or less? Or how would you Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't anywhere near as big as the Women's March or Pride Marches or some of the other marches we've had here in D.C. I I would say, you know, I was asking my colleague who was covering it yesterday on the Hill as well, you know, how many is thousands of people a good estimate as to the number of people who were here? And she said, yes. I mean, we're used to marches in D.C. They happen all the time. We're used to protests. They happen all the time, especially, you know, with what's been going on just in the last few months, um, in the last year with the Black Lives Matter protests and the Proud Boy protesters who've come into D.C. So, you know, we're, we're used to protests. We're used to marches. Uh, I, what we're not used to and what was just so, so shocking to people was that the folks who came into D.C. yesterday were, A, incited by Trump, and that's exactly what happened. This was incitement. And, B, they actually stormed the Capitol, which – people often call the temple of democracy. I am, that was really shocking to folks. And, you know, I, I was standing there yesterday. A lot of things are going through my mind, but the one thing that's probably most notable is that I, I couldn't help but think that I was standing there watching the storming of the Bastille. That's the, I kept going back to that. And again, I, I've reported from many countries around the world, um, Cuba, Central America, many other places and it's cliche to say oh this happened stuff like this happens in other countries well damn it it happened in washington dc yesterday and um we as a country have to own that and i think it's something that a lot of people just you know it's 
completely anathema to them to see something like this happen in our country. And that's a very sobering thing for many Americans and especially folks here in D.C. who um, were watching it in real time and just completely horrified by what was going on. So it was a very, very sad and scary day here. And there's a lot of people who, you know, again, as Brody said at the start, that are just completely, you know, shell-shocked, but also extremely angry as well that this was allowed to happen in our city. And um, you're starting to see calls for accountability, and we'll see what happens with that. But people are – to say people are outraged is an understatement at this point. Yeah. Um, it was completely, completely insane what happened here yesterday. No, totally, completely. Um, Jeff, I want to switch to you. Um, being a leader of a city, of you know, in charge of a smaller municipality than than the country, um, admittedly. But um, what was your thoughts when you saw what was going on yesterday? And uh, also, if I'm assuming you heard that as they were breaking in and for a good two hours, Donald Trump was actually watching it before he actually said or communicated anything. What what was your reaction to that as a as a civic leader? Uh, you know, it's shocking, and you sat there all day watching television, being shocked, but not surprising, given who he is and what he's done to this country over the last four years. Uh, but even when he did speak, you know, he said, "We love you. You're very special." To people who just put people's lives at risk and stormed our capital. And I I know the term white privilege came up talking um, about what happened in Mexico, and we'll get to that. But the same thing here, right? Look at the protesters. And if these were the Black Lives Matter protesters that were at the White House, they would have been met with tear gas and rubber guns and riot police from the start. And so it was incredibly offensive. He has still not condemned it, and he won't. And he created this. And, you know, there's almost some feeling of, the folks, some of the folks who are there, they're getting their news from Trump and his sources, and they believe that the election was stolen, and they believe what he's saying. And he wanted this, right? He was watching this, and he was loving it, because anything that might delay the Electoral College certification where he could say it didn't happen on the day it had to, or anything he could do to try and hold on to power in this truly attempted coup of our government, he would do. And it's really outrageous. And as, you know, currently a government elected official, but as someone who's worked in LGBT and civil rights as an attorney for most of my career, um, you just sit here and it's just hard to believe our country came to this. And you have to hope that what comes out of this is awareness from the public in both parties about the danger of electing someone who's a demagogue and who wants absolute power and has could care less about lying. And it was just, it was such a sad, sad day. It seems, um, and this, Jeff, I kind of want to get your perspective on this, because of, of, of everybody on the call, you are one who has actively gone out and asked people to vote for you and had a value over people's votes. Um, that seems, like, apart from what happened yesterday, just the intent of Donald Trump to disenfranchise millions and millions and millions of those votes that, um, you know, every campaign is based around, it it almost gets super personal of, 
your individual vote matters and we care and and all that and that value um trump completely has railroaded over um what what does that mean to you um, we, you know someone who takes voting in every election seriously and is you know now twice um run for and been elected to public office um you know people take their votes seriously you know uh, when you run for city council, you, you know, you do all the things you may do at other campaigns, but you also go door to door and talk to people and people take it really seriously. The questions you get and to undermine people's vote to try and say, you know, the person who they voted for didn't win um, when it's clear they did. It really, it just under, undermines our entire democracy. Uh, it truly does that. And he has created a real sense in this country for so many people that our elections are fraudulent. You know, it didn't matter that they were, you know, the governor and secretary of state were, you know, uh, Republican in Georgia, you know, that was irrelevant. You know, they were also his enemy. And that's ultimately what's so sad here is how many people believe his lies and the damage that's going to have to get repaired in this country uh, in the long haul. And then we had, you know, Josh Hawley from uh, Missouri saying lies like that. No Pennsylvania court looked at, um, you know, the issue on mail-in ballots, which was just a total lie. And so, you know, and he's a smart guy, right? He went to Yale law school. Uh, so there are people who want to continue that lie as a way to activate a base that is extremely right-wing, um, has a Confederate flag with them is incredibly anti-LGBTQ in women's rights and will continue to lie. And we have to figure out as a country how we're going to call them out and put a stop in it in a way that didn't happen with Donald Trump until this election. Right. I'd like to just yeah, jump in it, and add something. I'd, I'd like to just jump in and add something if I could. I was watching the yeah, debate last night. I don't even know what time it was. It was like 12 or one in the morning. The time kind of just blurs together at this point, but Mitt Romney was speaking on the floor of the Senate at one point, and a point that he made really resonate, resonated with me, saying, if you respect your voters, you have to tell them the truth. And the fact that we are at a, at a place in this country where we don't know what, you know, we don't agree on what the truth is, whether that's an election, whether that's, you know, you know, Trump's impact on our politics and our country as a whole, we're in, that's a, we're in a really, really dangerous spot if we can't even agree on what the truth is. And, you know, it's going to take a very, very, very long time for us to recover from that point. And hopefully if anything positive were to come out of what happened here yesterday was that it's an inflection point in saying we have to do better and we have to, you know, heal from this terrible, terrible experience and this terrible four years in which we, not only in the LGBTQ community, but other folks, women, immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, have found ourselves in because of this administration. We really have to start doing a lot better and coming to terms with that. So, um, yeah, I mean, we just have to, you know, you have to tell the truth and you have to be honest with people. And if we can't even do that, then we're in a very, very dangerous spot as a country. Let me jump yeah, in. I, I want to uh, say something to kind of piggyback on top of what you just said, Jeff, and what you just said, Mike. Um, 
This is from the speech that President Biden gave this morning in Wilmington, and it is germane, I think, to this conversation. This is this segment of it. Obviously, there were other remarks, but here's the main points from the, from the president. For the past four years, we've had a president who has made his contempt for our democracy, our Constitution, and the rule of law clear in everything he has done. He has unleashed an all-out assault on the institutions of our democracy, and yesterday was but a culmination of that unrelenting attack. He has attacked the free press, who dared question his power repeatedly, calling the free press the enemy of the people. Language that has long been used by autocrats and dictators all over the world to hold on to power. Language that is being used now by autocrats and dictators across the world, only this time with the imperture of the outgoing president of the United States. I think that when we look at, you know, not only what Senator Romney said on the floor of the U.S. Senate last night, and I, I was obviously watching and covering that, too, uh, along with what you just said, Jeff, you know, as, a, as, as someone who is an elected official and, and has gone through it, um, and to Rob's point, I, I think the most important thing is now, you know, going forward, the question really becomes, you know, where are we going to go forward? These people exist, and what is going to be done to address this issue? And I think that as the Biden administration starts out in such an inauspicious way because of Donald Trump, this is going to be something that's going to need to be considered, you know, moving forward uh, on a variety of fronts. Uh, sorry to cut you off, Rob. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it's, I wanted to go back to something Michael had said about the truth. Um, and, and since I've got two esteemed journalists on, on the line here, um, I kind of want to float this by both of you. Because to me, the, it's, it goes deeper than just the quote-unquote the truth. It goes deeper into willing to look at information in depth in, in discerning the truth. And I think one thing that has happened with social media and even how traditional media communicates itself nowadays is that it panders to the lowest common denominator, which is the sound bite, the two, two minute sound bite, the meme, the, you know, quick tweet, you know, everything's got to fit into, you know, these, these two sentences or less. And that is where Trump and his base have kind of, um, met you know in in other words he can throw out something that is his logic on why the election in his mind was stolen like i've gotten more popular vote than any sitting incumbent in history therefore i must have won the election you know that's his soundbite and you know the truth is is that your opponent won more than anybody in any election and the 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 truth is that the combined amount of votes between what Biden brought in and Trump brought in still only represents 50% of the country, meaning that we still have, we still have people out there who did not vote at all. So it's not like the, you know, it's this myopic look at information in a way that feeds a, um, a point of view rather than to Michael's point, the truth. Um, and I think in order to embrace the truth, there's got to be a willingness to not just take things at, 
in a flyby um, because the flyby is automatically going to short circuit the depth of real information because nothing is as cut and dried as, you know, anything anybody wants it to be. You know, there's always going to be gray areas. And um, Mm -hmm. I think allowing our communication to get to this, you know, quick, down and dirty is part of the problem because what it does is it lets people feel like they're uber-informed when they are, in fact, not. Um, and, and just the, the huge difference of perspective, the fact that the people of this mob thought that they were the patriots, that they were the ones, quote-unquote, standing up for the Constitution, that they were doing all these things, that the rest of us watching them and going, you are the antithesis, you are fascist, you are, you know, you are everything that is anti-democracy. Um, you know, and the fact that there are those two points of view sitting there is astounding. Um, I don't know that I had a question in there, but uh, I'm going to throw that out to you guys. Yeah, I, I, I'll take a I'll take a quick jab at that. I mean, I I'm that's a what you raise is really important. I think we also have to look at the uh, platforms that Trump has so exploited over the last four years. Uh, I you know. Facebook and Instagram have frozen his uh, accounts through Inauguration Day. Twitter blocked it for 12 hours. Um, That's all well and good, but why weren't they weighing in on this long before yesterday? Um, I think that's a question moving forward as well. You know, Trump certainly knows how to exploit um, media. He's He's a creation of the media from his time back in New York many, many decades ago, and um, he thrives on it, and that's, you know, one of the platforms that he has. So I think, you know, we as the press have to kind of take a step back and look, you know, what role did we collectively play in not only his rise to the presidency, but allowing him to um, put forth these, you know, ideas, conspiracy theories, so forth, and then even, you know, more you know, more to the point of what happened yesterday, using these platforms to incite his supporters to commit what things like what happened yesterday. We really need to take a step back and examine what role we collectively in the media have played in building this man up to where he is and allowing him to exploit that. So it raises a whole host of questions. I really hope that we in the media take an honest look at that moving forward because, you know, we're part of this as well. Not just, you know, Trump, you know, saying go march on Washington, but what platforms enabled him to do that? Who enabled him to do that? And so I hope that conversation happens, you know, with more of a sense of urgency than it was before yesterday. I think absolutely. uh, Yeah, I agree with what Mike said. I would go a little bit further, um, you know, we've had horrific issues uh, with the social media platforms uh, in terms of the mistreatment of LGBTQI individuals. Uh, we continue to have battles with the marginalization of our trans brothers and sisters, particularly on Instagram uh, and on Facebook, uh, because of the fact that the trolls have learned how to manipulate uh, the software algorithms and suddenly accounts are being, you know, deleted or deactivated 
uh, without any hope of appeal. We've had videos taken down uh, because you have two gay guys in a relationship or marriage kiss each other. The trolls get upset. It gets taken down. And Trump has been a, a master manipulator of all of that. And, you know, we need to address that because while I am going to sit there and point fingers, okay, at Trump and at elected officials, I'm also going to turn around and point fingers, okay, at Twitter, at Facebook, Instagram, because it's the same company, and at YouTube, okay, and now even TikTok. These social media platforms have given rise and voice to the very people that were destroying the U.S. Capitol building yesterday, incited by a demagogue. And they, the worst offender is Twitter, and Jack, in particular the CEO, for not cutting him off. That was a private account. Okay, At POTUS is the official account of the President of the United States. At Real Donald Trump was his private account. The president of the United States, okay, is still a citizen and still a private individual. And if he's going to sit there and violate, okay, the community standards or whatever the hell they want to call them, okay, which is the same crap, okay, that I would get busted for. Mike, you'd get busted for it. Jeff, I don't know if you use Twitter, but you would too. I mean, no. that You know, it's not just us holding, you know, them accountable, which I'm going to say as a senior editor – we screwed the pooch for the last four years. We should have been on top of this White House from day one, and we did not do it. That's on us. But it's also on these social media companies for not policing this nonsense from the get-go. And the minute he started to go off the rails is the minute they should have cut him off. And they didn't. And as Mike right. just said, we got to look forward now. And I think as the Biden administration takes over, and now we have a democratically controlled Congress, Lawmakers need to take a hard look, okay, at doing something about that. And Brody, when you said you said that yeah. um, the media should have um, done something four years ago, what what? Because the media seemed to react pretty strongly four years ago, um, and and has been continuously with the the different lies and and circus that was put on in the the uh, the White House press room. Um, what what do you think that they should have done that they didn't do? They shouldn't have been in a damn press room to start with. Okay, very good. All right, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> good answer. And, on, yeah. and you know, on social media, let's keep in mind that you know Twitter and Facebook suspended him literally after the storming of the Capitol, which was the same day they learned that Democrats would be controlling every committee that makes recommendations on them and the White House. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. you know, yep. they, until until that happened, I don't I don't know that they would have um, taken him down. To be honest, yeah, and very that's really troubling. Yeah, that's and that's an excellent point. Um, let's switch gears here um, because absolutely, there's a ton more to talk about about what happened yesterday. But I do want to um, go to our boys in Mexico. Um, Jeff, um, Palm Springs is obviously a, a, a glorious place, a great vacation place. Um, a lot of people go there for parties, et cetera. Um, so what is your perspective on this event that that took place in Mexico and, and the intent um, behind it? You know, I think any gathering of that many people for a party right now anywhere is abhorrent. And, you know, we closed down 
I think a day after San Francisco uh, before the state did, because we are a hotspot right away, right? We have a population that 50% are either at or believed to have been at higher risk at the time, um, since we don't know the uh, correlation with uh, HIV now, and seniors who are at high risk of dying from this. Um, and we have you know, been one of the few cities, at least in our county here in Riverside, which is you know, in the same 0% ICU capacity, um, we're one of the few cities enforcing the rules here. And to see people, and I'm sure there were some from Coachella Valley and Palm Springs, go to that environment and then come back here when they're going to put other people's life at risk is, was so troubling. Um, and I don't care, you know, as you said, where it happens, um, but it should not be happening. And for those of us who um, are of an age, you know, in the earlier t- early 20s when the AIDS pandemic started, uh, it brings a lot of that back. And, you know, uh-huh. a friend who died last night from COVID. And it's, you know, at least here, not our national government, at least our government is telling us what to do, which didn't happen 30-plus uh, years ago. And for people to gather to organize a party like that and really put people's lives at risk. And I get it. Everyone, you know, I want to see my friends. We all want to see our friends and family, but we're never going to get out of this without a lot more deaths and a lot more businesses suffering unless we all follow the rules. And the situation in Southern California now, like Mexico, there aren't ICU beds for people who have car accidents, for people who have heart attacks or strokes. It is off the charts. We have five times you know, more deaths a day than we did in July. You know, so when I hear from businesses, well, you know, it's just as bad as July and let us operate you know, our restaurants outdoors. It's safe, yet it was the fourth num- highest number of clusters was when we had outdoor dining open was from restaurants. And so it goes for sort of everyone, right? And this is a terrible example of this, to have a party where people come together and, you know, reading people are like, if I get it, you know, I'm young, it'll be okay. Um, is, it's just important. Right. Yeah, I, I want to bring up something that, because Brody kind of alluded to this earlier, and um, Jeff, you just, you, you uh, hearkened back to um, the time of the AIDS crisis. And I do want to point out, um, having been through that, that there is a significant difference and a difference in the attitudes um, or what I would perceive the attitudes of then and now. Um, back then, when um, when AIDS was starting to be spread and there were a lot of rumors and it, it created a lot of fear, um, one of the things that the people I knew, part of their reaction to it was kind of twofold. One is that AIDS was ominous. It was an ominous, absolute, at the time, death sentence. And, um, and, and it was very, very threatening. And that the, what was being asked of being closed down was taking away things that we had fought hard, even though we were, it was, they were still kind of in the back, back roads and, you know, back alleys and, and certainly not, you know, embraced by the public. But, you know, they were spaces that we had worked hard to kind of be able to go and be together in. And they were, um, you know, uh, activities that, you know, we had been condemned for and persecuted for 
that we were standing up saying, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to go have sex. We're going to go um, be with each other, you know, despite the, the oppression that we, we felt. And so when AIDS came in, the, the concept was, well, you can't go do any of that anymore. And we were right. And you, you need to be um, celibate and, you know, see that's the way it should have been. And so I see some of the reaction to the AIDS crisis and the acting out as both, you know, living in the, in the absolute fear of, of what it meant, as well as the reaction that it, it, it seemed to ironically play into the hands of the moralists that we were being oppressed by at the time. I don't see that as, a, as being the COVID equivalent. Um, what, what do you see the attitude of these partygoers being um, that, that are partaking in this? Sure. I mean, I, I, and I agree it's not the equivalent in that way, and it's also not the equivalent in, you know, how many years before uh, was HIV spreading before, you know, the government told us how to protect ourselves, right? And a lot of the same right. people from the same political persuasion who wanted and tried to put quarantines, right, against us on the ballot in California now want to be free to not wear masks and socialize, you know, <laughs> with people. Uh, exactly. Uh, you know, so... It, because it because it affected minorities, right? HIV/AIDS, and this affects everyone. Uh, COVID. So I do think there there are a lot of differences. Um, but I think one of you know, and they, I think one similarity is we all know what to do to protect ourselves and protect others, as we did after a couple of years with HIV, and not doing that is irresponsible on all sides, right? And there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, with COVID and how many people are going to die between now and when the vaccines are distributed because of a minority of people who are acting irresponsibly and putting other people's lives at risk because they're going to come back to essential jobs in many cases. And, you know, and same for people who are having parties at their house, right. On New Year's Eve uh, with a hundred friends and infect others who are vulnerable and who will die, you know, uh, I think Fauci said this is the equivalent right now in this country of eight jumbo jets just falling out of the sky and everyone dying on them. And there's at least one a day that would fit for California. And the lack of seriousness is just, it's just really frustrating as an official who's really working to protect our community. And we really lowered our rates quickly by closing down to start you know, seeing rates start going up again right. and not having ICU beds and all of that uh, is, is just really hard because people, People are going to die as a result. Um, Jeff, when you closed down in Palm Springs, and Palm Springs, obviously, before COVID, um, was seen as a great place to go have a big party, and, and a lot of um, gay people came from all over to Palm Springs specifically for that. Um, what kind of pushback did you get? I, I know in Huntington Beach, down you know two hours away from you, straight people were having an absolute fit over, you know, wearing a mask and, you know, not going all in mass to the beach, et cetera, et cetera. Did you get that kind of um, pushback from your community? I would say the overwhelming majority and throughout this have wanted us to do as much as we could to protect public health. You know, one of the nice things about being in a community like Palm Springs, uh, you know, we're 45,000 full-time, but obviously 
you know, that changes on weekends and in season to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But the people who live there full-time, you know, they're part of their neighborhood organizations. And it really does feel like a family. And so many people, I mean, the best of people was there too. People who are shopping for seniors they didn't know and, you know, the social media pages to, you know, help buy groceries for people and everything along those lines. And people still want that. I can tell you I haven't gotten one email that wasn't a po- that was positive about having an event like the White Party in April in Palm Springs. Everyone is opposed to that. Has reached out to me, um, and I, you know, it's just people want to see us protect people's public health because a lot of people remember came here um, thinking this was you know the last stop when there were no drugs to treat HIV and AIDS, and have survived that. And people take care of each other. And they want to see people take care of each other and be healthy. Yeah, that, that's really wonderful. Brody? Um, Jeff, you know, Sanka's Entertainment himself, he's based in Palm Springs. And the number one critique that I've been hearing that Troy's heard, uh, you know, Michael and I have actually talked about this because obviously we're colleagues uh, working for the same media organization. Uh, it just seems to be the studied indifference you know, to a population uh, that is minority, is already in crisis, even here in the United States, um, you know, especially in California, Dr. Galley, uh, the California Secretary of Health and Human Services, Governor Newsom, and other public health officials, you know, they've all pointed to just how severe the crisis is within our Latino and, and, and our black populations and even our uh, Asian populations. I know in Orange County, the Vietnamese uh, um, community has been really hard hit by this. Um, tragically, we don't know that much about how it hit in the LGBTQI community because until Scott Weiner was able to get that law passed, they didn't even chart us, and we're still having issues with that. But, I mean, what do you say to Sanker and, and people like that that are so cavalier about, well, we're just going to go down on New Year's Eve and have this great big party, and even though Jalisco and Riviera Nariet uh, are having huge, huge problems with the pandemic. You know, you run down there, and then you come back to Palm Springs after the fact. I mean, what do you say to that? And, and that's what's troubling. And, you know, whether it was, you know, going down, you know, people going to Mexico or people going to other states, right, neighboring states where they can go into bars and clubs and come back. Uh, and it's just not – acceptable in my view. You know, he did call me yesterday to, you know, express that, you know, he felt he was being singled out when there are a lot bigger parties and he moved it to follow the rules. Um, But, you know, I shared with him that the chance of this happening, a white party happening in April in Palm Springs was close to nil. The rules are not going to allow it. You know, the Hilton, which is uh, the venue he has a contract with, has been clear they will not do anything and they haven't that is in violation of a city county, state, or federal public health uh, rule. And for us, it's that we're going to have to really monitor this, and we have to do it. We have, fortunately, we don't have the Riverside Sheriff providing our police services in Palm Springs, uh, since he doesn't, you know, believe you should enforce anything on this, and, you know, believes this is all, this is all political still. But we have, a, we have our own police and our own paramedics and our own um, fire department, and our police and code enforcement have, we've issued, you know, $10,000 plus fines on businesses who have violated the rules. And mm-hmm. we will close down a business if they get three violations during the COVID thing of any kind. 
So we take it very seriously here, and there are some businesses who are upset, but the majority of our businesses, um, current mayor uh, Christy Holstedge and I created you know, the COVID business and nonprofit task force back you know, in May or June that meets weekly, and so we have all the business and nonprofit leadership on it. You know, they're all supportive of us enforcing the rules. They, you know, and doing everything we can to help them get federal and state funding to help them stay open and us spending funding to help them um, be able to stay open when this is over. But we hear very little, and there's some, and some growing, because I get it. You spent your whole life building a restaurant and, you know, your life savings in it. It's hard. Uh, I have empathy for that. But I have a lot of empathy for people who've lost loved ones. And, you know, we have... 23 of our police department staff out because of COVID exposure. You know, they're putting their lives on the line, you know, monitoring people who aren't following the rules and we have to respect them as well. And I, I should say, and then I'm probably going to see if Mike wants to ask you a question, but I, my, my take on Sanker whining about being singled out and he moved it to follow the rules. The only reason he moved it was because Riviera and Ariette didn't impose you know, uh, the the whole thing about mass gatherings and things like that. And the truth of the matter is, and again, maybe I'm being a little harsh, maybe I'm not, okay, but it's a little disingenuous for him to whine about that since everybody that was attending his parties were still in Puerto Vallarta, staying in hotels there, being served at restaurants there, being served by hotel staff, Uber drivers, taxi drivers, whatever you want, and that he's still infecting the local population. And again, that's just my take on it, Michael. Well, yeah, I, I would. I, unfortunately, Michael, I, I, I hate to cut you off, but we are literally out of time. So uh, your question, I'll have to wait for another show. I want to thank you for uh, showing up, and thank you for being there in Washington yesterday and what you do, Jeff. I want to thank you thank for you. coming on today and helping us out. And Brody, thank you for everything you do and um, your efforts to um, keep the world informed. Uh, For our listeners, we will be back again next week with another exciting, important conversation. Please do join us. Please do subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe to our podcast. We appreciate your your listenership. And uh, with that, we will continue to um, try to save the world. So uh, for uh, Brody and myself um, and for our guests, again, thank you guys so much for for being with us today. We, We really, really appreciate it. Um, You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and we will see you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.